Welcome, everyone, to episode 13 of the Healthcare Hub podcast. We've got a big episode today, so let's just jump right into it. My name is Tyler, and I'm here with my co-host, Avanav. How are you today, my friend? I'm doing great. Excited and pumped for this episode. Yeah, it's a big one, so we're excited to speak with today's guest, Fabian Paquette. He's the vaccines lead and general manager for Pfizer in Canada, and he joined us today to discuss all things in careers in the pharmaceutical industry and, of course, the crazy adventure he's been on in this past year, bringing a vaccine to Canada during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm going to get things kicked off with the news segment covering all things Pfizer vaccine lately to set some context. And Abhinav is going to spend the spotlight segment discussing Zipline, a drone delivery service for medical supplies. So if you're ready, Abhinav, let's just jump right into it. Let's get it started. All right, everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Hub news segment. Today, I'm just going to take us through a smorgasbord of recent Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine news updates, given the obvious focus we'll have on the Pfizer vaccine in our upcoming conversation. So just to provide some additional context to the conversation and provide an update now that the vaccines have been distributed since last year. First up, it seems like Canada is going to be receiving doses of the Pfizer vaccine earlier than expected. It was announced last week by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that an additional 5 million doses would arrive in June when they were originally planned to arrive in late summer. So hopefully that's able to get some timelines moved up in the provincial distribution channels and everything's able to keep up. Last week was already a big week for Canada receiving millions of doses from multiple vaccine providers. So hopefully the supply is starting to ramp up and that's a, a source for optimism here since we are feeling a little slow on getting the vaccines right now. In other news, updated trial data for the Pfizer vaccine, which includes 12,000 patients who have been inoculated with the vaccine for six months and participants in South Africa, has shown a 91.3% efficacy and still a 100% effectiveness at preventing severe disease. So there was no serious safety concerns. So this appears to set up Pfizer really well for regulatory approval in the US, since currently they're only approved on an emergency basis by the FDA. So being able to show that they, they're working with these South African variants and working over long-term periods, it's looking good for the vaccine moving forward here. There's also a recent study published in collaboration between the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the Yale School of Public Health, and the Connecticut Department of Public Health that explored how effective one dose of the vaccine was for elders during outbreaks at nursing home facilities, which is especially important for elders because vaccines tend to be less effective for them with their multiple comorbidities and clinical trials conducted within pop different populations aren't always representative of the elderly. The single dose of the vaccine was then found to be 63% effective amongst outbreaks at preventing infection, and they were unable to track the impact of a second dose because the outbreak started subsiding before second doses were even administered. So while the timeline for getting your second dose after your first one has been stretched to 16 weeks in Canada, not everyone's happy about that, but it's good to know that one dose alone is still pretty effective for the time being at slowing down the spread and getting rid of outbreaks. Lastly, recent findings from a phase three clinical trial in 2,260 teenagers aged 12 to 15 showed a 100% effectiveness at triggering a robust antibody response when using the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So this is particularly encouraging since the age demographics of those affected by the COVID-19 variants are, are uh, starting to skew a little younger across Canada. And as a result, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla expects to submit the vaccine for U.S. approval in those age 12 to 16 very soon so they can hopefully start getting that vaccine into teenagers in the fall. 
So overall, as the third wave seems to be dawning on us, it's good to see that there is some good news on the horizon. It's going to be great to hear from Fabian in our interview about all the great work Pfizer is doing behind the scenes. And uh, yeah, just any thoughts on that? Any of those news updates, Abhinav? Yeah, this is really interesting, Tyler. You're kind of looking at some live uh, clinical trial data and how, so some of the data now getting more specific information on how uh, vaccines can be spaced out, how it affects different variants, uh, how uh, different demographics respond. And this is all information that now Canada has, av- has available to make decisions on our vaccine rollout in our processes. So for example, I know most recently, a lot has been in the news about uh, essential workers, um, young essential workers uh, getting uh, COVID and being sent to the ICU. Uh, And how how does this affect a vaccine strategy where maybe we started off um, uh, vaccinating the elderly and working our way down age groups, but with more information coming out, how can we apply this to real life settings where maybe we need to continue on and prioritize uh, frontline workers at a same level as, say, uh, age 50 uh, year old. So this is just uh, a type of way that you can use information that's in live and and to make decisions. And uh, it's a really complex process, but real great information, Tyler. It's great to hear the positive news uh, overall that you mentioned. Yeah, we touched on vaccine hesitancy with Fabian in our conversation with him. So Hopefully, as all this data starts coming out uh, in all different age groups and over different time periods, people start being much more down for uh, getting the vaccine or in, in addition to all those who already are. But with that, that concludes the news segment. And I think it is time to throw it over to our conversation with Fabian Paquette. Fabian Paquette is currently the Canadian lead and general manager for Pfizer's vaccines division. He's also a member of the Pfizer Vaccines North America leadership team and Pfizer Canada Managers Forum. Since graduating from Université Université du Québec at Montréal in 1987, he's worked in a variety of other roles throughout the pharmaceutical industry, which have now led to being in this very prominent role amidst the recent pandemic. And with that, welcome to the Healthcare Hub, Fabian. Hi, Tyler. Nice to be here. Fantastic. Yeah, we can't wait to chat with you today. I think uh, you're definitely in one of the busier periods of your career, I'd imagine. It's pretty chaotic and being in such an organization like Pfizer that's right in the middle of it, we can't wait to hear your insights. Oh, you're bang on. It is actually the most uh, busiest period of my career. And at the same time, I would say the most exciting. So sometimes things happen at the right time and that's exactly what it is right now. With that, I'm going to kick it off with some questions that kind of go back into your early career. So we see that you did your Bachelor's of Business Administration at the University de Quebec en Montreal. So after you finished your undergraduate studies, how did you know you wanted to enter into the pharmaceutical space? Actually, back then, uh, I always had interest in science. And uh, while I did my, uh, my degree in marketing, uh, I always still looked into you know, what could be the options for science. And when I saw what was available in the uh, pharma industry at that time, I was under the impression that you needed to be a pharmacist or you needed to have a a, a true science background in order to get into this role. And uh, while I was having that impression, I still kind of asked a couple of questions here and there to realize that uh, they were also in some organizations looking at some diversity. 
And they felt that uh, at that moment, bringing in people, especially for a sales role at that time, that would have a different background, more business, might actually help to uh, generate different perspective and, and create a different team dynamic. So it was actually good timing for me. I joined an organization that at that time was looking for someone with a different background. And that's how I entered into the, the pharma industry. Uh, and that was actually a great opportunity for me to learn because I realized upfront that uh, it was uh, very well designed, a lot of great training to make sure that you know you can uh, be fully trained on, on your disease that you're going to be discussing with physicians, uh, that you're going to be trained on the products, of course. So uh, I was well surrounded with the great training programs that actually helped me to feel confident about it. Yeah, we've talked to uh, members who came from smaller pharma organizations and those from larger organizations. And we definitely found that the benefit of working in those larger organizations is all that support, the comprehensive training programs and all, all that education you're going to get to jump into that role in whatever clinical area you're in. So I think the golden question for our listeners, all these early career professionals out there would be, how did you go about getting that role? Was it through connections? Did you just apply to a job board? How did you hop into the job industry right out of school? Well, at that time, I actually uh, looked at uh, what could be the options. There was no internet, as you can imagine. So you had to go through the, the, the old ways of, you know, talking to colleagues or talking to people that might have been in the industry. So I reached out to a couple of people who were in the, in the industry. Uh, but the most important aspect to me has been to speak with my retail pharmacist at that time, who gave me some advice and actually let me know that there was an opening in one company. And that's how actually, you know, I, I reached out to that company, spoke with some ed hunters as well. And it was a combination of both actually, you know, I got into the ed hunter space with some additional uh, support to, to, to prepare myself for the interview process. And I got through it uh, through exactly this. And it was a combination of, you know, reaching out to people that were already there, plus the, uh, the advices of, uh, the headhunter that I was working with at that time. That's interesting learning about your uh, early career, uh, kind of the marketing, you were, the, the networking you were doing, maybe some phone calls were being made. That, that's really great to hear. But uh, I did want to jump into some of your roles as you've progressed throughout your career before Pfizer. So you, your career started in sales and marketing uh, at GlaxoSmithKline, then progressed to a business unit manager at Covatech. Then you moved into a business unit director and later uh, franchise, franchise head roles at Shire. So you really got a lot of experience in different prominent organizations in pharma. Uh, what kind of experiences do you think really would help someone become a leader in pharma in a pharma organization? I would say more than looking at experience, my best advice would be to have the right mindset. And what I mean by this is to be ready to learn and not to be shy to actually feel that you're going to be constantly learning and to be open to that learning component. Um, the second one I would say is, you know, don't be shy to knock at doors and basically illustrate why you could bring value to these organizations. I'll give you a very concrete example. In each of the roles that I've actually gone through from one company to another, I never had the technical slash scientific expertise of that therapeutic area. So I came in, for instance, uh, when I moved from, from uh, actually from um, GSK 
to Convatec, which was medical device. I did pharma for 15 years. I moved to medical device. I had no idea about the, the environment there. But, you know, I came in with a, an opportunity to bring a different view to the organization, to, to come in with a, an angle that they may not have had before and with a very open mind about learning and, and do uh, something different. So same thing, you know, when I joined and I left Convatec, I, I joined uh, actually Shire. Yes, I was back in the pharma world, but I went into the GI field. I went into uh, neuroscience area. I had no expertise in that, but you know, I brought different other elements. And that, so if I would have stopped myself and say, oh, I don't have that background, I'm not gonna apply, or I'm not, it would not have worked. And my last example to you, when I joined Pfizer vaccines as the Pfizer vaccines lead in Canada, believe it or not, I didn't bring any vaccines experience. They were looking for a different kind of leader at that time that would bring the organization to the next level. But what I did, I convinced them that I was capable of learning and understanding the science behind vaccines. So again, I, I wasn't trying to move ahead. So I would say just go with what you feel you can make as a difference. Yeah, that's a common thing we've heard from a lot of pharmaceutical professionals so far is that you jump between a lot of different clinical areas. It's not just one thing that you know best about. So was it just job opportunities that caused you to jump between so many clinical areas throughout your career? Or was there any inclination to go to one over the other? There was two aspects, Tyler, I would say. The first one is the... Uh, constant desire to learn, to, to actually be able to achieve more in, in professionally in, in a new role. Um, and, and secondly, feeling that I could make a difference or within a team, I could contribute more widely to make a difference to society. And, and as I was growing in the industry, I just felt that that component, how could I make a difference in the society from a, a healthcare standpoint uh, was becoming more and more important. So I got into, you know, different roles, of course, with, you know, larger responsibilities as I was moving up. So that was great. But at the same time, I always felt that if I would make that move, I would actually feel that I would bring value that would be different and would make it, you know, actually a good contribution to the organizations and to society. That's really interesting to uh, kind of where your interests lie and where that leads you into continuous learning, as you mentioned. So uh, are there any defining characteristics of working in the industry that really stood out to you? For example, maybe the lifestyle, the required skill set, uh, the career path opportunities, what really builds the foundation of a career in pharma? Well, the nice thing about the career in pharma is that you have a wide range of roles that could be actually available. I mean, you have, of course, the, the commercial pathway, but you also have the clinical pathway, the scientific pathway. Uh, we look at people with different kinds of backgrounds. Uh, you know, we have clinical research. We have, you know, people in regulatory affairs. We have people in medical. Uh, we have people in, you know, of course, the, the more traditional, you know, uh, aspects that we know. So if you look at all of this, it's, it's actually a very wide range of, of roles that are made available. And uh, I think that, you know, that is one aspect that you need to look for. The second one is really 
to see how could you really as an individual make a difference and feel that you can bring not just the competencies uh, that you could have or the experience or the, the knowledge and the expertise, but also how as an individual, you can make a difference through your leadership style, through your abilities to work in collaboration with colleagues. I mean, you would be surprised that, you know, when we go through the interview process, we spend a portion of the time on the more traditional skills and competencies. And more importantly, we want to know if the individual in front of us is having the right fit with our culture, is having the right mindset. You know, this, that per, would that person be a great team player? How do they work in a cross-functional team? How would they bring uh, a different perspective and be uh, capable of raising, you know, maybe a different point of view that could create some disturbance? You know, how would they show adaptability? I think that that is one of the most critical criteria. Personally, when I go into interview, the interview process, one of the most significant skills that I'm looking for is the ability of that person to adapt and to adjust. Uh, I call that sometimes embracing ambiguity, going through adversity and make sure that, you know, they could demonstrate that that's, those are elements they could be able to, to go through because that's the reality of the workplace today in the pharma industry. Yeah, you talk about being able to navigate all these different ambiguities and the pharmaceutical industry is especially unique because it's got very especially in Canada, very tight regulations on marketing and sales and how you have to go about doing those. And I, I see from your roles that they involve a lot of marketing and strategy behind the scenes. So as someone who came out of school studying marketing, how do you feel like you were able to flex those marketing muscles in that sort of uh, environment where there's, things are a little bit stringent on the marketing side of things, you're not allowed to do as much or market right to the consumer. So how did you feel like you were able to utilize those skills? Well, this is a very interesting question, Tyler, because when you come in with a marketing background, for instance, you have all of these great ideas and you feel like you can do a lot of these things. You get into the pharma industry and then suddenly the sandbox is getting a bit smaller and smaller than you may think initially. Uh, there are some areas where you have a bit more room to maneuver. In Canada, for instance, there are some products where you can do DTC, direct to consumers. Uh, vaccines being amongst them. So uh, that's providing a little bit more flexibility. But at the same time, it's forcing you to be more creative in the approach that you can put in place. And uh, basically, you look at your audience, the healthcare providers, uh, the, the customers being you know, experts in, in therapeutic areas, but they also have different backgrounds. Healthcare providers could be a specialist, a general practitioner, a nurse, a pharmacist. How would you establish a communication uh, perspective with them, considering that they might see you know, your products or the disease area differently? So th there is actually interesting challenges for a marketer when they come in and they join an organization to look at you know, their job from a, a, a maybe what could look like a narrow perspective initially, but you still have significant leeways and you know, we always look at new and innovative ideas. And I would say, for instance, that more and more you look at the digital uh, network, the digital pathways. This is an area where most pharma companies are still at their early stage. 
and the uh, I know the uh, the people who are coming from 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 an MBA, for instance, or just from a, a marketing background, will actually bring a significant component to what is not well known or well established within an organization. So that could be a nice, uh, I would say, nice uh, nice way to to bring you know a significant impact. Digital is becoming something that most pharma companies are aiming for to further develop, and there is still a lot of work to do. So this is definitely, and digital and marketing uh, is one of the examples where we definitely feel that there, there are nice opportunities. Yeah, definitely marketing, uh, given the regula regulations in Canada, is, is different in pharma here. Uh, it's more of a collaborative approach when working with uh, healthcare professionals, uh, as opposed to how it might be in other parts of the world. So I'd love to jump a little bit into your role at Pfizer now. So we see that you are the general manager and vaccine lead at Pfizer Canada. So just to give the view viewers a little bit uh, of a background, what does a day-to-day -day in your role look like? And what are some of your main responsibilities as an overview? Yeah, I would say happy enough that uh, in the last uh, year, my day-to-day -day has been highly involved with COVID-19 vaccine, as you can imagine. Uh, first of all, you know, we needed to actually make sure that we can bring the product to Canada, conduct all of the, the work that was required, uh, submissions to Health Canada through a new pathway, uh, working very closely with our regulatory colleagues, establishing a new distribution model. Uh, our vaccine is great in terms of efficacy and safety and tolerability, but it has a bit of a downside from a supply standpoint and cold chain perspective. So making sure that we have the resources in place. So when I looked into this, my first task was to actually put in place a cross-functional team related or dedicated to COVID-19. So I brought in a mix of colleagues from different backgrounds and I say, guys, we need to put in place what will be required to be successful in launching this COVID-19 vaccines in Canada. So that was, and I started that basically, I would say, in uh, July, August of last year. At the same time, personally, I was highly involved in the contractual negotiations with the government of Canada to actually be able to contract uh, the vaccines and to uh, make sure that you know, we would have doses available for Canadians. So it was a real combination of, of this from a COVID-19 standpoint. But at the same time, I have a wide portfolio of products in addition to COVID-19 that were still you know, uh, available and highly needed in Canada. We have products against pneumonia or pneumococcal disease. We have also a portfolio for meningococcal diseases. So we needed to make sure that I have a portion of the team that stayed focused on the rest of our core business. So one of my other key mandate was to ensure that I would have clear responsibility for each of my colleagues and my team member so people would continue to do what they needed to do uh, while we had another group of people dedicated to the uh, preparation and launch of the COVID-19 vaccine. So you, you brought up a lot of these multifaceted teams and these cross-functional teams. So you're leading on a national scale, you, uh, yeah, you're Canada's lead. You're the general manager of vaccines at uh, Pfizer Canada. So would you say that with regards to building collaboration amongst the organization, is there more of an emphasis on, or, or would you say you spend more of your day 
collaborating with uh, different geographic areas around the country? Because obviously there's different funding models and regulations in different geographic areas. Or is the collaboration and, and building of teams more focused on representation from different clinical areas? Or is it all of the above that are super important? It is actually a combination of both, Tyler, because you need to ensure that internally you have that synergy, that collaboration, that cross-functional uh, effectiveness that is required because everything was moving at, you know, an incredible speed. Uh, actually, we were, you know, one of the most critical aspects when I created that cross-functional team was to say to, to my colleagues, guys, we're going to navigate into an area that we've never done before. You know, there is no pathway ahead of us. We're going to have to actually build that pathway as we're walking, walking in. So uh, I had to make sure that the mindset was clear within the team to say, don't necessarily say that you're going to do this that way because you've done this before, because there was no before. I mean, we were actually negotiating a contract for a product that didn't even was approved in Canada, was not even on the market. We had to actually build, you know, delivery models that was never done before. So I had to make sure that the team within, you know, cross-functionally was capable of thinking out of the box and feel confident about being innovators. At the same time, I had to have the same discussions with my global colleagues that were facing similar issues around the world and also internally with the Public Health Agency of Canada and the different provinces. Because for them, it was also a very different approach. We were coming in, you know, trying to end this pandemic and trying to find solutions and bringing a, a vaccines, for instance, for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines, that adds some particularities that they've never had to deal before. So, it, they, they, they know, so everyone had to make sure that they would be open-minded, flexible, and capable of adapting to uh, what is actually a, a pandemic that everyone needed to address. Yes, absolutely. I think with this pandemic, uh, this is leadership at this level now in a, in a stage where there's no precedence uh, for all the teams involved. So how do you really adapt in that situation? And that's really interesting. So you've been uh, speaking uh, in the news about how you've been working closely with the government uh, for the vaccine uh, approval and the vaccine uh, approval process. And I really wanted to know how is this compared to potentially a traditional vaccine approval? approval? I assume there's a lot more pressure on the government to act more quickly. What has this work environment been like working closely with this with the government in uh, more of an urgent process like this with the COVID pandemic? Yeah, this is a very interesting question, Abhinav, and you'll see that, uh, again, in this case, everything has been done very differently. And, and what was great about, you know, this pandemic is the fact that everyone who's been playing a role had to change and be mindful about the importance of doing things differently if needed be. So the industry did more partnerships than we've never seen before trying to accelerate the development of the COVID-19 vaccines. We had discussions with several companies where usually we'd honestly talk to each other. Uh, same thing with the government. You know, the government realized very quickly that their usual regulatory approval pathway, which usually lasts about you know, 300 days, where you need to submit everything at the end of the clinical process, would not work in this case. So they've 
being open-minded actually and flexible to say we need to relook at a new approval process for the, the different COVID-19 vaccines. And they've put in place what we call an interim order model. So the interim order model has that flexibility with a rolling submission approach. What it means is that we were providing from a rolling submission standpoint data as they were coming in. So we were sending, I would say weekly and sometimes three, four times a week, new data to Health Canada. So they could actually evolve in their approval process way faster. As a result, instead of taking over 300 days to get this vaccine approved and following the exact same you know, regulations about approval, it took them about 61 days because they were actually doing things you know, basically as it was ongoing. So it was real-time assessment of the clinical information that was provided to them. I think that that is one of the key learning that hopefully we'll be able to continue to build. And as the companies were actually building processes in parallel rather than doing it in sequence, that has helped us to bring a vaccines in, in the world in less than a year rather than in 10 years. Obviously, there are a lot of huge pharma organizations out there that manufacture vaccines, develop vaccines. However, not all of them stepped up to the plate, not in a, in a bad way, but not all of them uh, developed a vaccine right away for COVID-19. So as an org organization that did, what goes into that decision to feel compelled to come to the rescue in the pandemic? Like there's a lot of risk involved. Your vaccine might not work. And then you've done a whole organizational shift to make this vaccine that doesn't end up working. So what empowers an organization to say, okay, we're going to be the one to step up and take the lead here? Well, this is a very interesting question. And I will bring this back, Tyler, to that notion of the company's culture and the company's values and the, com the company's you know, mindset. We have the, uh, the great opportunity to have uh, Albert Borla as our uh, global CEO. And uh, Albert is being known to be someone who likes to challenge the processes. And, you know, he really wants to make sure that this organization, although pretty large, could also be playing, you know, in an area where we could make a difference and as such be as nimble as we need to when we need to. And uh, earlier on, you realized that Pfizer would be uh, amongst the different companies that could have this ability. And uh, they, uh, they quickly, you know, Albert and the CEO of BioNTech got together. They knew each other from a previous agreement. And actually, the, the uh, mRNA technology was actually something that was uh, uh, under development for different type of vaccines between Pfizer and BioNTech. And they sat down and quickly they say, OK, maybe that together, if we re really work hands on hands, we can make a difference. And that was a decision that was taken earlier on to actually put a significant amount of resources at risk behind the COVID-19 vaccines. And what came out of this is about 20 different compounds that it clearly had to bring down to just a few. And uh, the clinical trials came out after the phase one, the phase two, and the phase three. And all of this was done knowing that uh, it was at risk. But at the same time, if Pfizer and BioNTech together were not doing it, who else could do it? So it was that mindset to say, we could try to do it and we'll, we'll go ahead full steam, we'll take the risk 
because we believe that we have the capabilities to make it happen. And the beauty in this case, it was a nice combination. It was very complementary. What BioNTech was bringing is different than what Pfizer was bringing. And together, that combination made it very successful, knowing that both organizations were willing to take risk, invest billions of dollars. I mean, Tyler, we were changing manufacturing sites without knowing if the vaccines would be working. So this is a kind of mindset. So clearly, you know, kudos to our leaders who actually were bringing us in that direction and making sure that we can really together, you know, contribute to uh, end this pandemic. Yeah, that's highly interesting. Uh, leadership at a global level uh, and investing in this new, newer mRNA technology. So on that note, we recently spoke to Andrew Casey, president and CEO of Biotech Canada, and he clarified that a large reason for the delay in the vaccine rollout in Canada was not a result of not having any vaccine capacity, but simply lacking the capacity for the mRNA technology behind these new vaccines. So how has this pandemic affected how Pfizer views mRNA technology for the future? And is the company looking to implement more mRNA-based manufacturing plans in new locations to potentially capitalize on opportunities? Yeah, actually, uh, if you think about it, Agnav, we, we started with a technology that um, we had some knowledge from a clinical trial standpoint, but we, we never had any you know, mRNA technology vaccines that were officially deployed, you know, to the population. So the idea was to say, okay, if these vaccines would work, how could we actually ensure that we can, you know, make sure that this, this vaccines would actually be able to be produced in, in a pretty large scales and make sure that we can provide uh, a lot of vaccines in a short period of time. And, and that's the beauty of this technology. You know, because this is a, a computerized approach of designing a vaccine, you can very rapidly turn around and adjust your vaccine. And I think that that was one of the key elements that drove the organization to invest significantly in the mRNA technology. They've realized that within months, instead of years, you could actually readjust. And what we're seeing right now is a good example of this. Though our vaccine is working well against the different variants, but should a variance come out and our vaccine would not be working against that one, it wouldn't take five years to find a solution. Within months, we could be able to readjust the formulation of the vaccines to be able to address uh, this variant. So that was a key success factor for us to consider in the desire to further invest in this technology. Now, it's one thing to have this technology, it's another one to produce it. And you know, initially the production was done at a very large, a very small scale for clinical trials of a couple of hundreds of patients. Suddenly, you needed millions of doses because you said, okay, we need to start a clinical process where you're going to have, you know, 4,400,000 4, people you, or you're going to have you know, a lot of people involved in different sites. So how could you make sure that you're going to build the manufacturing capabilities to support that? And it wasn't, it wasn't available. So we had to create that manufacturing capabilities. And we've realized that it's, there was machines that was required to build uh, the mRNA technology that didn't even exist. We actually had to create some machines because those, those machines were not, those, they were just not available. No one was producing them. So we had to create actually just the combination of, of putting the, the, the lipid formulation with the mRNA itself was a, a mix from a, a, a device that we had to, to build from scratch.
So all of this has created some, some complexity. So that's why, to Andrew's points, it's not because you're producing a, a type of a vaccine that you can change you know, your, your, your manufacturing site in, in days and then make it a, a vaccine that could produce you know, mRNA. You need to set up your facilities, your capabilities accordingly. And this is, this is more complex than you know, people may think. You know, creating a vaccines you know, requires a lot, a lot of elements to ensure that all of the, the, the steps are, are in place. I mean, the mRNA technology requires 280 components. And these are coming from over 86 different suppliers around the world, uh, coming actually from 19 different countries. So this is just illustrating the complexity of producing that vaccine. You brought up the, uh, the possibility in the future of the quick turnaround time on, on uh, altering the vaccine because of the mRNA technology to perhaps make a booster in the future as the vaccine can, or as the virus continues to evolve. Would these new slightly altered versions of the vaccine need to go through reapproval process with the FDA and Health Canada? And would they need to go through clinical trials again? Or how does that work? Well, absolutely. Um, we will need to follow a, a similar process. So uh, any, any new vaccines, even if it's an, an adjustment to a, a, a previous version, we'll, we'll need to go through this. Uh, now that we have some experience, Health Canada, I believe, will look at some of the information a little bit differently. Uh, and uh, sometimes, depending on the, the, the change that will be required, you may need to submit more data or less data. If it's only a small adaptation, you know, you will be able to probably have to submit less clinical data. Uh, but if it's a, a major change, uh, then you may have to, to submit you know, larger uh, chemical and manufacturing information. Uh, you may need to submit more, more clinical data from a, a, a phase one standpoint. And of course, you know, it's always the same thing. You want to make sure that what you're going to provide uh, uh, as a high profile of safety, deliverability, and uh, immunogenicity. So uh, the, the requirements are, are the same in terms of what is going to be needed to get an approval. I did want to jump into one area I find very interesting, and that's basically just about supply and demand uh, given this COVID-19 vaccine. So as all of uh, Pfizer vaccines coming to Canada are manufactured in other parts of the world, with a large portion of manufacturing coming from uh, Europe and the, and the USA, uh, how does Pfizer decide where to allocate their net manufacturing capacity? Is this a decision made at the Pfizer global level, or do vaccine leads of different countries coordinate in some way? Yeah, the manufacturing of vaccines is pretty complex. And uh, we already had uh, a few very well-established manufacturing sites. For instance, uh, in Kurs, Belgium, where we're producing you know, millions and millions of vaccines, uh, we have a, a very you know, strong assets there, which has helped us to decide that in order to create or, and manufacture the, the, the mRNA technology, we should probably build from, from what is already in place. So in this case, we have actually built a, another uh, manufacturing site within the campus in Perth, and uh, that has helped us to, to complete it. So the decisions are made at the global level, leveraging where we already have some, some capacity. Uh, in the US, we also have some capacity now 
what we've realized is that in order to produce to the volume that is required to address a pandemic, we had to make some changes. So in the U.S., we actually transformed a, a, a manufacturing site that was doing injectable products. We transformed them into a, a vaccines, vaccine sites where we actually uh, significantly upgrade uh, the, uh, the, the production lines to ensure that we can make the uh, mRNA technology. So this is really a global decision. Now, of course, you need to look at what the demand is worldwide and you see what could be feasible. But the most important point in this, I would say, is that when you have to address a situation, and in this case, it's a pandemic, the number one criteria in terms of where do you going to make your vaccine is where could you make a safe and effective vaccines quickly? Because you are in a pandemic mode, you cannot take the time. You need to address something that has a worldwide terrible impact. So that was one of the key criteria. Where could we manufacture this mRNA technology the fastest possible with the highest level of quality? And of course, you usually go back to where you're doing it the best way, which is in your current sites. Yeah, we, we're talking a little bit about how, you know, the, the circumstances change when it's a global pandemic as opposed to other uh, situations that pharmaceutical companies would be in. Obviously, anything that's being made by a pharmaceutical company, very important, helps save lives. But this situation is a lot more uh, dire and urgent. So with the pharmaceutical industry in general, you notice a lot of uh, heavy competitiveness between different organizations. There's generics popping up that you're trying to stay ahead of. There's competitive products that, that have the similar indications to your product. During this pandemic, has there been, excuse my millennial language, but has there been kind of a different vibe to the competitive landscape here where there's more openness to collaboration between the different organizations or uh, is, it, is it similar rat race to the finish here? Well, I love your expression, Tyler. There has been definitely a very different vibe. And uh, clearly, very earlier on, we have seen an incredible amount of exchange and collaboration, not just between the different players within the industry, but also with the uh, universities, with the academics, with the clinical researchers at, uh, you know, that are working in, in the, the public world. So there was a desire to actually see what we can do by bringing uh, resources together. How could we potentially accelerate this? And you have seen incredible collaboration amongst industry members. You, you look at them, and of course, Pfizer and BioNTech, but there are also other companies who've joined forces to actually help to um, create or accelerate uh, their, uh, their research and development towards uh, the, uh, the COVID-19 uh, disease and, and, and finding vaccines or treatments that could help to manage this. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the pandemic has created that vibe and hopefully uh, this will continue moving forward. Hopefully people will see the value of doing those kinds of collaborations. There will always be competition between pharma companies, but at the same time, there could also be moments and opportunities where collaboration could make a difference. And, and without that open mind, I could tell you that it would have been impossible for Pfizer and BioNTech to get a vaccine in place within a year, uh, for Moderna to get a vaccine also in a very short period of time. You look at the other companies who are joining forces as well. It is critical. It is critical. 
So on that note of uh, collaboration, helping to mobilize this huge project more quickly, uh, how does an organization kick off such a huge project on such a short notice? Were resources from other divisions or uh, reallocated or did other areas of the organization have to pivot to start working on the vaccines or did funding uh, allow for Pfizer to just uh, include new external resources, for example? Yeah, actually, if I take the example of Pfizer, uh, earlier on, our CEO put a, a five-point plan to make sure that the organization would understand what we were going to do with this. And amongst these different components of his five-points plan, one of them was to create what he called some sort of a SWAT team, where he would pull resources from different uh, departments. A bit like, you know, I did from a Canadian standpoint, but he did that from a in the overall, you know, global organization standpoint. So he dedicated uh, great resources in, in clinical development, in R&D, in manufacturing, in medical, uh, and so on and so forth, to work together in a cross-functional way and have them fully dedicated and highly engaged to make a difference. And, and you know, it wasn't difficult to convince these people and to convince anyone I would set Pfizer to uh, actually be part of any of these cross-functional team. Because, you know, actually that's the way I present that to my team on a regular basis. We need to see this as a, a privilege that we have to work to, uh, towards an organization that wants to help make a difference and end this pandemic. So, you know, you have to have that mindset and everyone has been highly engaged knowing that it's a unique opportunity and you need to be inspired by this and that's what i've seen amongst my colleagues within pfizer and also within other members of the the industry there was a true desire and a, a true inspiration knowing that you can change patients life significantly with this and and that feeling is very important because that is the driving component that makes people to work like we did uh, and others i mean there were people who've been working seven days a week for months to make sure that, you know, we would be able to get something in place earlier on. And, you know, you need to be dedicated like this. When you need to be dedicated like this, it's because you really feel that you're inspired by making a difference. One of the issues that we seem to be facing right now with uh, getting out of the pandemic and getting the vaccine into everyone's arms, and perhaps to an extent that surprised me a little, uh, at least a little bit, uh, would be vaccine hesitancy. Uh, it, you know, uh, obviously the uh, clinical trials and everything was accelerated a little bit more than normal, and that has caused uh, some part of the population some une unease with the vaccine. But what role does Pfizer play in educating the public on the benefits of vaccination? Is it something uh, internal that Pfizer handles, or is it uh, you work with external organizations to make sure the public's educated on that topic? How do you make sure the uh, the population is is down to get the vaccine. Yeah, this this is a very interesting question. Uh, considering the nature of what we see right now, you may feel that you know vaccine hesitancy is, is being on the rise, but it's not actually. Uh, if you look at the number of or the percentage of Canadians who's willing to get vaccinated, if you look at the numbers for COVID nineteen right now versus the general feeling about getting vaccinated, you know, five years ago, you see that it's now higher than, than ever. And I think that that is going through a lot of education that needs to continue to be in place. 
you know, don't get me wrong. You always have strong voice against immunization. It's been there for forever. It will always be there. Uh, but, you know, the fact is that when you look into this, you look at the science, you look at what is publicly available, the data is, is obvious. I mean, you look at the herd immunity effect. I mean, diseases have disappeared in the last, you know, 15, 100 years, you know, thanks to immunization. So at the end of the day, you always face this. But if you have the dialogue with people, because the vast majority of people are, are not, you know, on the super fans of vaccines or the anti-vaxxers. The vast majority are somewhere in between. And you need to make sure that they continue to be confident about the value of vaccines. And this is an ongoing dialogue. How is Pfizer involved? Well, we're partnering with the public health agencies around the, the country. Uh, we're supporting patient organizations that you know, might have you know, an opportunity to do something like this. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think that what we, we try to do is to let public health uh, to do the, the, I would say, the main of their work, because that, at the end of the day, their mandate as well. We're trying to bring science. We're trying to bring facts, data. That's our role. But, you know, after this, then it's basically the public health groups that will actually have that communication channels wide open. Of course, you know, we want to make sure that if people have questions related to our vaccines, we make that information available. Uh, but for the vaccine hesitancies at large, uh, we are one amongst several players that could make a difference. And I think that at the end of the day, if we continue to provide education, if we, if we continue to support uh, the, uh, the right information to be available, that will help to continue to address that. So yes, really interesting to learn about the uh, education process and definitely of all the vaccines out there, uh, public confidence might be some of the highest behind the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, it's interesting to note that in August 2020 is when Pfizer actually officially became part of Canada's vaccine portfolio. Uh, now, this was before all of the phase three clinical trial data had officially come out. And I'm really interested in discussing some of the nego negotiation process a little bit more. Uh, so what type of information really helps uh, Pfizer stand out uh, when making these negotiations? Was it the clinical data to Today, the manufacturing capabilities, supply chain and logistical strengths are a combination of these factors behind getting the negotiation and the ongoing confidence behind how Pfizer is moving forward. Well, I mean, Ab, you're bang on. This is a combination of all of the elements you just described. Uh, of course, I'm not going to go into the details of, of our negotiations, but clearly what the government was looking for is to have a... Uh, a partner, a manufacturer, a supplier that could provide a safe uh, vaccine that is well tolerated, that will have the scientific data supporting its uh, efficacy with, you know, very robust, you know, immunogenicity uh, data, but also someone that will, you know, provide some sort of, you know, assurance in terms of those availability, so volume-wise, so how much could we produce on all of that? So it's a combination of factors. Uh, but clearly, you know, what I could say about this is that earlier on in this process, the government of Canada was really looking to um, acquire vaccines to 
make sure that they could be in a position to provide vaccines to as many Canadians as possible. So uh, that was something clear up front. The challenge is that Canada is one amongst many, many countries that were looking to vaccines, of course, uh, and particularly Pfizer vaccines. So we were facing a situation where the demand was actually way higher than the offer. And that also is creating a bit of a challenge worldwide because, you know, in, in the case of, of Pfizer, we knew that we would be able to produce, you know, roughly two, two I mean, from 1.3 to 2 billion doses. Well, uh, that's not enough to cover the needs that we sell worldwide. So thankfully, there were other organizations coming in. And if you combine all of the manufacturing uh, capabilities that was made available to all of the organizations, you start to get a certain volumes. But clearly, we are in a situation where, you know, there was way more needs than, you know, vaccines, at least to end this pandemic. Now, once we're going to be post-pandemic, it's going to be a different story. But right now, the focus was to say, how could we maximize the productions around the world uh, to, you know, address the issue that we see with this pandemic? Yeah, looking at the different sources of demand for these vaccines, obviously, it's like striking gold to be able to make this vaccine and be one of the first ones out of the gate. That's a very profitable endeavor. But I'm sure at the corporate level, there's a lot of uh, weighing between ethical uh, ethical issues and profitability issues, like giving it to more developed countries versus less developed countries where they might not be able to afford it or private organizations like a sports league that wants to vaccinate their players and whether or not to do that before more vulnerable people in the population. How did Pfizer weigh out those pros and cons between those ethical dilemmas and profitability dilemmas? How did that weigh out? I'm glad you're raising this question, Tyler, because that actually is going to be very, I know, uh, interesting to illustrate that one of the four core values that we have at Pfizer is equity. And very earlier on, it became one of the criteria for Pfizer in the deployment of doses around the world. How could we make sure that there is a, the equity is being supported? So what does this mean? Is that, of course, when we were having all of these discussions across the world with different countries, we wanted to make sure that we also had an opportunity to work with uh, the organizations called COVAX where we could also be able to provide support to um, I know, uh, third world countries or you know, countries where it could be more challenging to have access to vaccines. So that was part of the equation. And uh, we have right now uh, an agreement with COVAX to provide you know, a significant number of vaccines. We're talking several millions of vaccines to these countries. Same thing, you know, for the middle class countries. So there was that desire to have equity as part of the equation when we were uh, doing the, uh, I would say, allocation of vaccines around the world. You know, in addition to excellence, uh, which is another of one of our other one of our other value, uh, equity became one of the most critical ones. 
That's really interesting. I, I was actually looking at the COVAX program and seeing which uh, pharmaceutical companies are providing uh, vaccines to different countries. And I was interested, is there some level of coordination between different pharmaceutical companies to say, uh, these are the countries we will be uh, offering vaccines to, while others, uh, other companies support uh, other developing nations uh, on the COVID program, uh, on the COVAX program? Was there some type of coordination amongst all pharmaceutical companies? Actually, I don't, I don't have much details about this. It's going to be a little bit more difficult for me to comment on this. I know that we've been in discussions with COVAX. We were providing you know, millions of vaccines. Now, how the deployment is happening within these countries, and there is, there is a, I believe, 80 or something more. There, there's actually a significant amount of countries that there is more and more being added to the list as we speak. Uh, I, I don't necessarily have the details about how the deployment is happening within within the organization. It's really great to hear about uh, absolutely the uh, Pfizer core value of equity. I was looking at the corporate website and uh, there are a lot of simple yet powerful values instilled at uh, Pfizer. So those include courage, excellence, equity, and joy. Uh, so I did want to ask a little bit about corporate culture at Pfizer if we start to close off this episode. Uh, what does Pfizer do to instill these values in its more than 78,000 employees worldwide? And how do these core values impact your work at Pfizer Canada? I would say, Abhinav, that uh, these core values are the essence on what and how we do things every day at Pfizer. There is not a day where we don't refer to one of our core values. And you refer to them courage. I mean, the way we've addressed the pandemic with the focus and the, the risk-taking approach to uh, ensure that we can have you know, what is required from a, a production standpoint and everything is a good example of this. Uh, equity, we just talked about equity. You know, we have a lot of work that is being done about diversity and inclusion within Pfizer. Uh, those are elements that are being supported with our equity value. Uh, joy, we always want to celebrate uh, what has been, what we, we consider being you know, significant achievement. You look at joy, the, the, the proud, uh, effect that we have within Pfizer about what we're doing right now. Uh, making sure that, you know, we, we know that we can make a difference with the recognitions that we have of the great work of our colleagues. These are the concrete elements that are driving what we do every day. I mean, it's really part of the, you know, the, the mindset that we see at Pfizer. And, and all of this is because everyone really believes, you know, in, in our you know, vision of, you know, bringing breakthrough that changed patients' lives. You know, that's really what is driving us and the values are helping us to make sure that we can achieve that. So beyond Pfizer, we, uh, we, we'll close off the interview with a question that's more closer to, to you, to Fabian's core values. So we see on your LinkedIn that you are uh, definitely passionate about cycling. Uh, you've cycled for a, a variety of fundraisers like the Ride to Conquer Cancer and Le Grand Defi Pierre Lavoie. Uh, how long have you been cycling for? Is this uh, something you've always been passionate about? Is it something you've always liked doing for charity or, or how did this come about? Well, thanks for the question. That's an interesting one. When I was a kid, I loved uh, being on my bike, I mean, I could spend days on my bike when I was a kid. You know, those Mustang bikes, you know, with the big tires. You may see, you may see that if you do some YouTubes, you may find some of those images. But uh, basically, after that, I, you know, when I grew up, I didn't do much of cycling. And when I turned 50, I said to myself, what could I do for my own health? 
And I started to reflect on what would I enjoy doing? Because, you know, I keep, you know, being active, you know, I do the workout on a regular basis, but I wanted to find something that I really had interest in. And I reflect on this and, and cycling came back. And I decided to say, okay, I'm going to now, you know, do what I really enjoy doing uh, when I was a kid as, a, uh, as an adult. So uh, that's where I started. So uh, I was 50 and I just started to get more equipped on, 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 with a good road bike and start to enjoy it. And uh, I realized that I had the same big smile on my face, you know, at 50 riding my bike than when I was five. That's great. I, I hope as the weather continues getting better, you get to go outside and cycle more. I know a lot of people are very happy that summer is on the way. Uh, optimism in the air, activities to do outside. Uh, and to circle back, Pfizer's pivotal role in helping us get uh, out of this pandemic. And with that, I think that's a great way to end off this episode. Thank you so much for joining us uh, at the Healthcare Hub. I think a lot of people are going to be interested in uh, hearing this full story. Uh, and with that, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Evan Abbott. Thanks, uh, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. Today, we're going to be talking about Zipline, a San Francisco-based startup that uses drones to deliver medical supplies. Zipline started to have drones make trips from hospitals and health centers in Rwanda in 2016. Now, the startup is worth $1.25 billion USD and has up to 300 employees working for the company, with two distribution centers in Rwanda and four in Ghana. These distribution centers are meant to speed up the transport of medical supplies in areas with poor roads and a lack of refrigeration capacity. So how do medical supplies get delivered using drones? Well, doctors order products from their phones and drones can make the deliveries within a 50 mile radius in an average of 30 minutes. The drones can carry packages weighing almost uh, four pounds and can drop them to designated areas on the ground using a simple paper parachute. Zipline says that it has already delivered over 60,000 units of blood, critical medicines, and vaccines for measles, polio, and other diseases. And looking forward, the company is working with the government of Rwanda and Ghana to continue to support their coronavirus response ever efforts. For example, distribution centers in Ghana hold stocks of emergency, emergency personal protective equipment, uh, PPE, allowing health authorities to target their distribution. As well, it has started to deliver COVID-19 test samples from hospitals in rural Ghana to, to labs in the cities of Accra and Kumasi. In more recent news, Zipline has been able to deliver 4,500 4, doses of COVID-19 vaccines in a single day within Ghana's Ashanti region. Over the coming 12 months, Zipline says that it plans to distribute some 2.5 million doses across Ghana, where many of these doses are part of the COVAX program. The COVID-19 vaccines being delivered by Zipline are Oxford AstraZeneca, which makes sense given that these vaccines only require refrigeration uh, at normal temperatures to remain stable. This also means Zipline can transport the vaccines using the insulation it already uses to transport other medical supplies, uh, vaccines, and blood. As I mentioned, the company is founded out of San Francisco and, the, and is looking into how they could use their drones to, be, to deliver medical supplies 
in the USA later this year. For example, access to specialty drugs for non-coronavirus patients can be a problem in rural communities, even in USA. So Zipline hopes that by distributing products that would otherwise only be available at hospitals, it can also protect patients' health, uh, free up beds, uh, and provide support just as they have been doing in Africa. So overall, an interesting uh, story of a startup founded in the States, but really doing a lot of their effort, efforts and work uh, in Africa. And wanted to get some of your uh, opinions on this uh, startup, Tyler. Yeah, I mean, again, that's something we talked about with Fabian today, getting uh, vaccines to those people in remote communities that aren't as privileged and we don't want to leave them behind during the, uh, during the pandemic. But it's good that these technologies are able to uh, get these vaccines distributed much more easily than maybe 20, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago when these technologies weren't around. And uh, it's always a good sign when drone technology, drone delivery technology is looking like it's on the rise because I have shares in Drone Delivery Corp Canada. So always good to see that, that technology on <laughs> the rise here. So. Corp Canada. Yeah, well, I mean, from a cold chain uh, logistics perspective, I think it's interesting to note that you know, if you use a drone, you can uh, avoid potentially uh, traffic, avoid in some places where roads might not even exist uh, and get supplies in, uh, in a short amount of time. Uh, so that's what they've been doing and using Oxford AstraZeneca to do so. I was looking into the, the weight uh, having being able to transport four pounds is a bit of a limitation. Uh, I've seen other research studies trying to use uh, uh, UAV quadcopters, military military grade uh, drones to supply vaccines in Southeast East Asia, and they've been trying to deliver uh, ten kilogram loads. So it's interesting to see this uh, kind of potentially being used worldwide. I was also thinking about yeah, our conversation uh, in the in the podcast where um, we we mentioned uh, indigenous communities in rural areas needing vaccines and uh, could potentially drones be used in this. I don't know if Canada has been doing that, but uh, just an interesting thing to think about. With that, I think that's the end of our episode. Thank you so much for joining us on the Healthcare Hub. Mm -hmm.